North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have the final guest speaker from the sabbatical. I was actually in church yesterday with my friend Brian. I was just leading worship, though, and Brian uh, graciously (laughs) spoke, so I didn't have to spend my last uh, few days of the sabbatical coming up with the message. So this is a great message. I was there for it, to listen to it in person, called The Art of Surrender. And uh, there's so much in this that I think you will find helpful. So Brian is the pastor of the Mid-City Vineyard down in New Orleans. And let's go ahead and head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. again. I feel like I'm at home at Mid-City Vineyard in New Orleans because we rent, uh, we rent a, another church's building on Saturday nights. The, the building is over 110 years old, so on any given Saturday night, we might walk in and the AC is completely broken, or we might walk in and the AC is leaking and the room that we're meeting in is flooded, and so we have to spend the first hour of setup mopping up water, and so I just thank you guys for pulling this AC, pushing it up. Making us feel like we're right at home. Hey, do we have any more of these yellow cards? If you have one, this is, it's, it's, it's time. And while you fill out your yellow cards, I just, um, I know you guys, I see so many different faces than when I, or more faces than when I was here eight weeks ago because you heard that Crispin was coming back today. And you're like, woohoo! And then Brian got up here to teach. I'm like, man, dang it. There's a guy in our church who teaches uh, fairly often, and every time he gets up to teach, he tells people, he says, I just want to thank you guys for now that you know that I'm here, you're not getting up and leaving. He says, when I used to be a part of the Kenner Vineyard, every time they would say, hey, Brian's teaching today, I would go, oh, crap. And he says, and now I'm that guy, and I just thank you guys for not leaving, so... If you don't know me, uh, my wife Christy and I, my wife Christy is over here, and, and we pastor Mid-City Vineyard, uh, which we planted about two and a half years ago. Uh, if you're a praying person and you ever uh, want to pray for us, we will, uh, we will receive that prayer. We thank you for that. We meet on Saturday nights. Uh, we had a building. I think I told you about this last time I was here, but we had a building. We were, we were getting ready to move into a building on Sunday mornings. The emotional energy of our congregation was high. The excitement was high. After two, after two years, we were moving to Sunday mornings. It was going to happen. Uh, we had put in a lot of work at the building we were moving into, and then the week that we were supposed to move in, the building burned to the ground. Like, like burned, burned, not... We're talking like, I don't know how many alarms a fire can be, but however the max amount of alarms a fire is, that's what this fire was, and it's gone. Everything's gone. And so we're back on Saturday nights, and it's been, honestly, it's been a real um, emotional challenge for our whole congregation. And so uh, we're, we're actively looking for another place to meet on Sunday mornings, uh, struggling with that. But so if, if you're a praying person and you pray for us, please pray for that. Just uh, for our congregation to to, to keep about, um, to keep about the business. Any more of these? I'm going to read them. Here we go. All right. So I am a person that's firmly convinced that if your faith 
uh, is not tangible, and if your faith in some way, shape, or form doesn't work in your everyday, normal, regular life, then my question is, what is your faith, and why even have it? Uh, I think that if our faith doesn't apply to the everyday stuff, then it's worthless, and uh, it's much more than just mental assent. And so in this particular exercise, I think this is a great way for all of us to, to be engaged with one another and what God's doing in our lives. I got this uh, from a recent event I was at at a club, and they did this, not with the God uh, card, but uh, I thought, hey, this is really fun, so let's give this a shot. So here's the question. Consider your week. Where did you experience either frustration with life or frustration with God? Or where did you experience grace and the presence of God, since life is a bit of both? So I'm just, I haven't read these yet, so... Here we go. Uh, this week, I accidentally overtipped someone. <laughs> I drive for Uber. If I am ever your Uber driver, please accidentally overtip. I, uh, I love those. I accidentally overtipped someone a large sum, and by her reaction, realized very quickly uh, it was God at work. The money was going to make a difference for this person. Yes, it is. Thank you for So that's, that's a means of grace and experience of God's presence. Uh, this one is another uh, one on, on grace and presence. Uh, I experienced answered prayers for a successful brain surgery for my cousin's son. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. I received a call from an old boss who asked if I remembered a conversation we had 10 years ago about God. I did not. In that conversation 10 years ago, I had questioned why he didn't believe in God. He called this week to admit he was wrong after a stint of instability in his life he has found God. He is from Pakistan and prays to Allah. He recited a proverb from the East where it said, a tragedy that drives you away from God is a curse, a tragedy that drives you to God, is a blessing. God is great. Great story. Thank you for that. I experienced grace and presence through being outdoors with my family and riding bikes. Thank you for that. The simplicity of faith. Uh, when, when I am home alone praying, Jesus lifts me up. Another story of grace and presence of God. When I hear the, the Booth brothers praise Jesus, it sets me up for the day. I just want to sing and dance to the Lord. Thank you for that. Another good one. I got an expected gift from my sister through God. My sister passed away a year ago. Another means of grace. Thank you for those. You are a highly in tune, presence of God, experiential grace kind of people. Uh, last night when I did this with my church, they were all frustrated with life and or God. Uh, I'm sorry, personally, that none of you are experiencing that. Um, but I just, in, in the event that you are, I just want to set you free that you are in a church where you are allowed to experience frustration with life and frustration with God. Uh, if you don't know that you're in that kind of church, you are. Uh, and in the process, maybe we do continue to experience grace and means of grace and the presence of God along the way. 
Um, so both are fair. That's why they were both on there. By show of hand, did anybody happen to experience any frustration with life or God this week? Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. So you're in good company. Um, may you be free to, to share these things uh, as we move forward in the future. So here we go. There's a um, poem by, the woman, uh, by a woman by the name of Carol Billick that I absolutely love. Let's begin with this. I built my house by the sea, not on the sands, mind you, not on the shifting sand, and I built my house of rock, a strong house by the sea, and we got well acquainted, the sea and I, good neighbors, not that we spoke much, we met in silences, respectful, keeping our distance. But looking our thoughts across the fence of sand, always the fence of sand, our barrier, always the sand between. And then one day, and I still don't know how it happened, the sea came without warning, without welcome even. Not sudden and swift, but a shifting across the sand like wine, less like the flow of water than the flow of blood, slow but coming slow but flowing like an open wound. And I thought of flight, and I thought of drowning, and I thought of death. And while I thought, the sea crept higher till it reached my door. And I knew then there was neither flight nor death nor drowning, that when the sea comes calling, you stop being neighbors, well-acquainted, friendly-at-a-distance neighbors, And you give your house for a coral castle, and you learn to breathe underwater. Carol Billick, the name of the poem is Breathing Underwater. My experience, especially over the last 10 years or so, uh, life comes at you very quickly. Seems to be going great perhaps, and then the next thing you know, you turn around and, and, and the sea is at your door. Something falls apart. Someone passes from this earth. Something happens in one's marriage. A kid turns sideways on you. A best friend turns sideways on you. You come face to face with your own addiction. You come face to face with your own insecurities or your own weaknesses, your own powerlessness. You come face to face with your lack of faith that you've built your whole life on and all of a sudden nothing makes sense anymore. Whatever it might be, you realize that the sea is at your doorway. The sand barrier is no longer protecting you. And when this happens, I love how Billick says it. She says, you know, I thought about running and then I thought about drowning and at the end of it, I really just thought about dying. Maybe I just die. Or maybe I learn how to give myself over to it and I learn how to breathe underwater. Maybe there's a way that this sea might not kill me, but it might morph and change and transform me in a way that I can experience life more fully, more gracefully, with more mercy. Maybe I can grow up a little bit. 
And that's kind of been my experience over the last number of years. And I would say 10 years, but then if I had to really put it together, I'd say over the last one or two years is, is this thought of what does it look like to actually grow up? What does it look like to grow up in Christ? What does it look like to grow up in spirituality? What does it look like to mature? What does it look like to be a person who actually has roots that go deep and not just a mile wide and an inch thin so that every time a little storm comes battling, battering up against me, I don't just fall over. I don't just drown, die. In the book of Luke, and these are on your outline today, and uh, this, is a, this is a risky day for me because I'm taking extremely popular passages that anyone who's been in church for any amount of time, you've heard these passages, and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know you know that. My hope is that we would not just know it, but maybe we would begin to see what, what might it be to experience a little bit more. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25 on your outline there, the, the version NIV. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow after me. Whoever wants to actually save their life needs to lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? In uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, the third step for someone who wants to work the 12 steps in AA, the third step is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. I've been spending a lot of time uh, with my friends who are in AA over the last uh, number of years, going to meetings with, with them uh, uh, when when the meetings are open and and reading the big book and reading the twelve steps and traditions and just working my own way, um, though not an alcoholic, I have other addictive tendencies as I believe everyone does. And so these steps are fantastic and beautiful for anyone and everyone. And I think that Bill W, who wrote the AA program and ultimately came up with the steps, was a man filled with the spirit of the divine, uh, and and is truly onto something here. It's interesting, in AA, though, the first step uh, in AA is that we admitted that we're powerless over our addiction in AA alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. The second step is that we came to believe that there's a power greater than ourselves and it is only this power that can restore us to sanity. The third step here being that we now make a decision to turn our will in our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. I think in Christianity, uh, and, you know, I, this isn't AA versus Christianity. I, I, we need it all. But I think that ultimately one of the first things in Christianity is moving towards, you know, Jesus does this thing where he says, hey, listen, here's the deal. Repent, which means change your mind. Recognize that you're headed in the wrong direction and come and follow me, which is ultimately about surrender. I mean, to change my mind and to repent. And, and so Jesus is like, here's, here's the first thing. Just kind of surrender Give yourself over to this. Come follow me, and, and let's see where this takes us. So I want to look at Luke chapter 9 and AA, step 3, for a few minutes today. First, let's take the step from AA. Uh, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. First off, we make a decision. Second off, we turn our wills over to God or surrender. Third, to God as we understand God. I find this interesting because... 
if we understand God in particular terms, there are some of us in the room that might understand God in such a way that we would never, ever, ever, never, ever turn ourselves over to the God who we have an image of. For instance, if you have an image of God who is vindictive, or if you have an image of God that is always out to get you, or that lords things over you, if you have an image of God uh, that is uh, petty, or God is abusive, then I would suggest to you that if this is your image of God, do not surrender your will to this God. And I also would suggest that that is not the image of the divine that we see as portrayed in the scriptures. One person once said, I understood God as a punishing God growing up, and honestly, I have no desire to turn my will or my life over to a punishing, punitive God. Good, don't. And I think for many in the world today, and perhaps in this room, if you've grown up with this view, maybe, maybe your view was shaped and formed by early church experience where that's the image of God that the church you are part of portrayed. Or maybe you had an abusive parent, and that parent represented to you the things that God might be, and, and you thought, well, if that's how God is, I... I don't want to get on board with that. And so the idea ultimately becomes embedded in our psyche until we reach a place where and until we reach a place of understanding that God is actually good, that God is actually on your side, that God is actually beautiful, that God is actually merciful, that God is actually gracious, that God has actually forgiven you before you ever ask for forgiveness, that God has always been on your side, that God created you in His image and that you are an image bearer and have been an image bearer and have been experiencing God in ways that you never even knew before in all the goodness and grace and the things that are going on in your life. Basically, that whatever Jesus Christ in the Scriptures looks like, that's what God is. That's who God is. If you want to know what does God look like, what does God really look like, then let us look to Jesus where in the Scriptures... Paul tells us the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Jesus. So what does God look like? God looks like Jesus. And if it doesn't look like Jesus, then it's not God. And what does Jesus look like? Well, Jesus looks like the person who found the weak people, who found the hurting people, who found the disenfranchised people, who found the ones who realized that their lives felt like a train wreck. Jesus was the one who said, hey, like you, I want to hang out with you. Not because I, 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 I think that, um, uh, that you're hurt or you're broken, even though I, you are, but I just want to be with you. Like you're the people I like. See those guys over there, the ones who think they have it all together? I hate hanging out with them. They keep showing up at the parties, and they keep messing everything up. I want to hang out with you. I've kind of come to this conclusion that if, if you really want to be a person who, who hangs out with Jesus, it, it pays to come in tune with your weakness. It pays to come in tune with your powerlessness. It pays to recognize where you're kind of messed up. Because those are the people that Jesus is like, let's go! Let's hang out. The problem is, and the challenge is, is that 
your, your understanding and your view of God won't be changed intellectually. It's not a cognitive exercise. This is an experiential exercise. And so if you grew up, and, and I find that most people who grew up in a particular type of church, those are some of the people that have the worst image of God, unfortunately. I get it. But if you have an image of God that doesn't look like Jesus, it's not just, oh, okay, well, that's great. Brian from Mid-City told me that God's not that way, so I'm just going to take him as word. No, it's got to be an experience. There's got to be a, a space and a place. And, and if that's you, you know, there are, there are things that I believe through spiritual direction and through community and, and connecting with other people who are kind of experiencing these things where, where we can grow and talk about and learn and begin to experience Christ and God differently. So the first thing is kind of understanding what is, what is our view of God. How, that's how we surrender is because you can only surrender to a God that is good and loving and true and beautiful and that you can trust. The second thing is the idea of surrender. Again, in Luke chapter 2, now let's read it again from the Message Bible. Then, and this is the second one on your outline, then Jesus told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. So don't run from suffering. And everybody said, not amen. (laughs) Like, what? Jesus says, don't run from suffering. Embrace it. (laughs) Follow me, and I'm going to show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Surrender is the way. It's my way to finding yourself, your genuine, authentic, true self. What good would it do to get everything you want but to actually lose the real you in the process. And there is a real you. There is a real you underneath all the the fake you. There is a real you under the poser you. There is a real me under the Brian who wears a mask me. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is saying is, listen, like we want to reach a place where you know, you don't have to wear the mask where you don't have to be the poser. You don't have to be the, the, the phony. You don't have to be the fake. But actually, I want to give you your life back. The real you. Now, here's the thing about surrender. In my experience, surrender always feels like dying. Surrender always feels like dying, which is why people don't like to surrender. But surrender is the only true way to find freedom. Surrender is the only true way to find liberation. Surrender is the only true way to find your authentic, genuine self. But also, at the same time, though it feels like dying, we need to understand that surrender is not giving up. Nearly as much as surrender is giving ourselves over to whatever it is. Now think about this with me. Because when we think about surrender, we think about dying. Giving up up. But what if it's not giving up? What if it is giving to or giving ourselves over to? For instance, anybody play golf in the room? Okay. Okay, you six are going to understand this. So I used to play golf before uh, I had kids. So it used to be when I had time and had money, I played golf. Now I have children. It was some kind of a trade. So when <laughs> When I was in high school and college in my early 20s, I really enjoyed golf. The object in golf is to take as few swings as possible. I enjoyed golf. I was never good at golf. Uh, A good score in golf, just if you don't know, well, a a perfect score would be 72. I averaged around 132, so do with that what you want. So 
So at some point I thought, well, I'm, I'm spending a lot of money, and I'm definitely getting my money's worth because I'm on the golf course longer than most of these other people. But <laughs> if I want to actually have a better score, I should probably try something here. So I, I decided to take lessons. And so I would go to the lessons, and uh, the guy uh, stood across from me. He says, swing. And, and so I'm swinging, and, and I'm swinging, and, and I, I, you know, whatever, 6, 12, 18 swings. And he says, okay, all right, I, I know what we need to do. How do you know what we need to do? We're not even on the golf course. I mean, he says, don't worry. He says, so here's what we need to do. We need to, we need to practice pulling this shoulder in. We need to keep this shoulder in. This hip is flying out, and that's why, you know, you're throwing the ball over here and over here. And, and so uh, he showed me how to do it, and it felt really uncomfortable his way. I mean, I've been doing this for eight years. I don't really need his help. I know how to, I know how to swing. I just want to score better. So... He does that. He shows me how to swing, and then he leaves, and I, I'm like, yeah, forget that. And so I go back to my way. And then we come back the next week for lessons, and same thing. He says, yeah, you're doing the same thing. I said, yeah, I know what you taught me. Just It didn't feel right. So I went, he said, okay, well, you got to, so, okay. And all right, so he leaves. I do, my, I do my way. He comes back the third week, and so he says, you're still doing the same thing. Why are you paying for these lessons? You, you're not doing anything that I told you. I was like, well, I asked you to help me play better golf, not to change my swing." And he says, listen, man, if you, if you actually want to score better, he says, your swing is your problem. That's got to change. And, and it, it kind of dawned on me in that moment. It's kind of like, oh, you mean I need to actually surrender to the process here. And in this case, surrendering was not giving up. Giving up would have been what I did once I had children. <laughs> I took the clubs and I put them in the attic. That's giving up. But at that point, before I had children, I was surrendering. What was I doing? I was giving myself to the actual process of, oh, and it felt like dying. I mean, in in a lot of ways, I was dying to the way I had been doing it for eight years. Now, that's a fun example, but let me give you a different one that I've shared with you guys before. And I won't go as deep into it, but when I was dealing uh, for, for quite some time with my own anxiety and my own depression, my anxiety and my depression uh, for some time had gotten completely, I mean, it, I was off the rails. I was, I've told you this before, but if you, if you don't know, but I mean, I was, I was, I was paralyzed. I was, I was in my bed. I wasn't leaving my bed. I wasn't leaving my house. I, 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 I just, the, the, if you've ever experienced depression to a certain extent, like to the point of being suicidal. And one day, my, my spiritual director asked me, just kind of like, what kinds of things are, are, you, are, you, um, are you learning and are you experiencing in this place of your depression and your anxiety? And it dawned on me after two years of these conversations with my spiritual director that my spiritual director was actually inviting me. And, and he even said at one point, he said, what would it look like if you actually... Instead of praying this away, as you've been doing for two years, what if you, instead of trying to get the next uh, drug or the next pill, um, not, not uh, drugs, but um, uh, medication, it, trying to get the next thing, or, or, I mean, those things, maybe you need to be doing those things, but what if you actually started to actually give to the process? It, it, because you've been praying for two years that God would take this away, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You've been searching therapist for years now, and that doesn't seem to be, like, what if there's something else that maybe is taking place? What would it look like to actually surrender to the process? Now, I would suggest that if surrendering were giving up, that would have been 
suicide in, in this case. But what if surrender is actually giving oneself over to, okay, like this literally sucks worse than anything ever in my life ever, and it's not going anywhere. What does it look like to actually give myself to this and experience, see where might I experience God in this? What kinds of things might come my way? It was almost a a turning myself over to the situation, turning myself over to God in this instead of, I mean, ultimately, here's, here's the real bottom line. I was trying to get God to be like this cosmic magician that pulls fluffy white rabbits out of his cosmic top hat. That's the kind of God I was raised on. That's the kind of God I kind of like, you know. But my experience is that God is actually not very good at pulling fluffy white rabbits out of his cosmic top hat. And so I had to switch gears and say, well, what, what else might be going on here? Now, the only way this actually happens, this surrender to this good God, is by making a decision. Making a decision. It doesn't happen with a feeling or an idea or a Bible verse. I wish it did. I love when I'm asking people something, and they're, they're like, well, in the Bible, it says right here that you, and I'm just like, oh, that's a Bible verse. That's great. That doesn't mean squat to me right now. That's no better than an idea or a feeling. At some point, it's kind of like, what, what do you, when the rubber hits the road, what are you going to do with it? You know, like, it does take some decision-making and a means of grace, I do believe, from the Holy Spirit. All of us have this inner program, I would suggest, for happiness. All of us have our own plans for what it means to be secure. All of us have our own ways of how we're going to maintain control, how we're going to make sure that we're esteemed. Yet here's the thing, these things can't work over the long haul without becoming more and more, without them forming us more and more into control freaks. And we find ways to control how to stay on top, how to stay happy. We find ways to control how to to be liked. I would suggest that one of our primary addictions is to our own power and to our own programs for happiness. And when we're addicted to our own power and our own programs for happiness, surrender hasn't taken place. And listen, I'm, I'm at the top of this list. I have my own programs for happiness. You know, there's something about, there's something about when I get my 401k statements in the mail or the email or whatever it is and opening it up and being like, oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be helpful. I feel secure. Of course, when that, when that stuff crashes, you know what happens then, right? You open that email and you're like, well, you can't even say in church what you really think, right? <laughs> you're like, oh. We all have our own programs for happiness, and as long as we're maintaining. But our primary addiction, I believe, is to power and our false programs 
for happiness. Father Richard Rohr says this. He says, what makes religion so innocuous, so ineffective, and even unexciting? Listen to that. What makes religion unexciting is that there has seldom been a concrete decision to turn our lives over to the care of God. And I would suggest that this is true of Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, because we're all after the same thing. We're all after an awakening of the Spirit. We are all after peace. We are all after mercy. We are all after means of grace. All, all religions, and yet all religions, and, and the tenet of all of these religions is surrender. Lose yourself to find yourself. And yet, Father Rohr says, that's what makes it so unexciting. No one's doing it. No one's actually dying to their need and their desire for power, their need and their desire for their, their understanding of happiness. No one's doing it. And I would suggest that for religious people, is, 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 uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, uh, you name it, for, I would suggest that for all religious people, to not surrender is a major lesson in missing the point. I really would. I think I'm going to write a book one day about missing the point, lessons in missing the point, because I think that we're, we're like, we're very good at missing the point. I mean, Jesus, the thing that Jesus seems to say more than anything else is, hey, die, and you'll find life. And we're like, yeah, I want life, but forget that dying stuff. That's crazy talk. We don't want to die. And, but we want the, the awakening. We want the roots. We want the maturity. We want the life, but we don't want to die. It's a lesson in missing the point. And I don't, I don't care what religion you are. All the religions are teaching the same thing. Surrender. Jesus says if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. This is about surrendering our ego. It's about surrendering our control needs. But nothing happens until we decide. Your spouse can't decide for you, though they would love to. Your kids can't decide for you. Your therapist can't decide for you. Not even the divine can decide for you. It's like dieting. You have to weigh out the cost and decide if it's worth it. And it never is with dieting. It's like kicking alcohol. You have to really decide, do I want to kick it? People want to kick alcohol all the time, but they don't want to go to the meetings. People want to get their lives in order. They want to kick the alcohol and get their lives in order, but they don't want to work the steps. It's like your blood pressure is too high and your doctor keeps saying, if you don't exercise, you're going to die. But your doctor, that's as far as your doctor can go. They can't go exercise for you. Jesus says, count the cost. So the question is, will we turn our lives over? Will we surrender? And I, I think this works in everything. Will we surrender to the process? What is the process for you? Maybe it's addiction. Will I surrender to the process? In, or maybe it's your ego. Will I surrender to the process? Maybe it's where you find your security. Will I surrender to the process? Maybe you're in a phase of your life where your faith is completely being deconstructed. Well, maybe don't fight it so much. What if you give in to the process and find Christ in the process? You see, because here's the, here's the bottom, bottom line as far as I'm concerned. Christ is everywhere at all times. So why don't we find Christ in the process? Last thought for you. The most common and universal substitute for surrendering our will 
is when we succumb to the myth of heroic sacrifice. Let me explain that. The common way of surrendering the self while not really dying to ourself is by being sacrificial. Religious people love this. Because to be sacrificial in your life looks generous and it looks beautiful and it looks loving, but usually it's still about me. Because when I'm sacrificial in certain ways, it gives me boundaries, it gives me identity, it gives me superiority, you think I'm amazing, it gives me definition, it gives me admiration, and really, it allows me to just keep controlling the scenes without ever really dying to myself. Religious people do this all the time. But look at me. Have you ever been in a conversation where something happened and the person was like, yeah, but look at everything I've been doing. There's your telltale sign. Or have you yourself ever said, I can't believe they did this to me. Look at all these things I've done for them. Oh, that one kills me because I've said that. And it kind of takes me back to, well, then why have you been doing these things? (laughs) So that if they ever, you know, stab me in the back, I could say, look at what I've done for you. Because I was being sacrificial. But there was no surrender engaged. See, I want to get to a place in my life where I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. So that I don't have to come around showing you my badges. Well, I did this and this and this and this. But just what does it look like to actually surrender to the work of the divine in our lives? And this is why. Because the ego, your ego, always prefers the economy of merit. And what that means is that you and I like, well, if you do this, I'll do this. And if you do this, I'll do this. And if I do this, you do this. This is the economy of merit. We like this. That's how we keep score. We know what's up. Well, God, if I do this, then you pull that rabbit out of your cosmic top hat. And if, I, if you do that, then, God, I'll do this. Like we make, you know, because merit works for us. We know how that works. But see, what Jesus does is he overturns the whole thing. And he's like, no, no, no. All of life is grace. The whole thing. We're working on, on there's a new economic system here. It's the economy of grace. And it's like, I do things for you, Josh, as God. I'm not God, but you get the point. I, God, the divine, do things for you, not because of anything you will or can or might do for me. It's just because I love you and I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I think you're amazing and just keep going. You don't owe me anything. It's the economy of grace. See, but when we start to operate according to the economy of grace and we understand that this is the heart of the divine, then surrender becomes, and this is why we don't surrender because we haven't experienced it. But then surrender becomes kind of the the way we move and we ebb and we flow. It's like, yeah, I give myself more and more to this divine being. The love part's done. Here's the deal. The love part is done. You're loved. You're secure. God is on your side. God has done that part. God says, Jesus says, now do you want to find your genuine life, your authentic life, your real life? It's right here. Come live into it. Do you want to? Come live into it. I'll teach you the ways of grace. I'll teach you how to lay down the mask. I'll teach you, but it's going to take surrender. It's kind of like, okay, I, I give it. I give it. Here it is. I give. Die to self. Live in to love. Last verse, Galatians. And this is how we'll close. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. St. Paul says it like this. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. He says, I've now been crucified with Christ, and my ego is no longer central. 
but Christ lives in me. So now this life I live in the body, I live by faith in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. That part's done. I, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But now I press in. I press in as my ego is no longer central so that I can experience more of the true life that Christ desires for me. Amen? Well, I would like to invite you to stand. I'd like to pray for us. Do I just pray for us, Crispin? I want to welcome you back, Crispin. Thanks for taking some time off, finding your soul, finding some vision, finding some grace. I'm going to pray for us, and then if you need prayer for anything, I invite you to come to the front here. Maybe there's a place of surrender. Maybe there's a place where you need to just experience more of the grace of Jesus in your own life, and I'll invite you to receive prayer for that. So, God, we thank you for your presence that's in this place, in this space. We ask that you would continue to transform our hearts, our souls, our guts, our minds, our thoughts, our lives. Lord, wherever we find ourselves, whatever it is, may we give ourselves to the process. And may we find you there. And so, church, today, as you leave these walls, as you leave this space in this place, may the Lord God bless you. May the Lord God keep you. May the Lord God cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord God open your eyes to experience and to see and to recognize the presence of the divine everywhere at all times. May you experience and see beauty and grace and mercy, kindness and goodness. May you be filled with peace in the name of Christ. May you live out a life this week of love and forgiveness out of humility. May you experience God this week in ways that, the simplest ways that maybe you have not ever before. We pray all these things today in the name of God the creator of all that is good and true and beautiful. In the name of Jesus, the cosmic Christ who was from the very beginning, is now, will be forevermore. In the name of the Holy Spirit that breathes life into everything, including your lungs, breath after breath after breath. And together, everyone said, amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything, I want to invite you to come on up here. Our prayer team would love to pray with you. If not, God bless you. Have a wonderful one.